Today at Reader's Corner, Amelia Pang, author of Made in China, A Prisoner and SOS Letter and the Hidden Cost of America's Cheap Goods. I'm Bob Custer. Welcome to Reader's Corner. In 2012, an Oregon mother named Julie Keith opened up a package of Halloween decorations only to find something shocking inside, an SOS letter handwritten in broken English. The note's author, Sun Yi, was a mild-mannered Chinese engineer turned political prisoner, forced into grueling labor. In Made in China, investigative journalist Amelia Pang pulls back the curtain on Sun's story and the stories of others like him, including the persecuted Uyghur minority groups whose abuse and exploitation is rapidly gathering steam. What she reveals is a closely guarded network of forced labor camps that power the rapid pace of American consumerism. Amelia Pang is an award-winning investigative journalist. Her work has been published in the New Republic, Mother Jones, and the New York Times Sunday Review, among other publications. She is an editor at EdTech Magazine. Made in China is her first book. Emily Pang, welcome to Reader's Corner. Thank you so much for having me. Your book is obviously powered by two very important characters, Julie Keith and Sun Yi. Let's talk about Julie Keith first. She sure sounds like a soccer mom to me (laughs) that uh, some political survey ought to be covering in terms of how she's going to vote in the next election. But her life takes a significant turn, you might say, in your book. Could you tell us about that? Yes, um, that's exactly what she is. I actually attended one of her children's soccer games with her. <laughs> actually, no, <laughs> well, baseball baseball games with her. But okay. she's a typical American suburban mom. She, she's a mother of two small children. You know, she's just really busy working and trying to make ends meet. And she often just gets the cheapest things possible because that's what uh, the budget can afford. And a few years ago, she was gifted a Halloween decoration from Kmart. It was really a trivial product that a family member had bought for her for no other reason other than the fact that it was ridiculously cheap on sale, on clearance at the end of Halloween. And so she puts this decoration in her storage space and forgets about it. You know, no one in her life, including herself, had a real use for it. And it was two years later that she remembered to open it as she was um, decorating her daughter's Halloween slash birthday party. And she is shocked to find a very chilling note inside that's written by the forced laborer who had made and packaged this very product in a Chinese gulag, essentially on the other side of the world, and his letter had been waiting for her to open it this entire time. So that's Sun Yi, and why does he wind up in one of these forced labor camps? What did he do wrong? Sun Yi is a really fascinating character. He, he was a political dissident. He was a member of the Falun Gong group. While people may have a lot of disagreements with their Um, beliefs, and I'm not going to argue with that. But in China, they've really played a very interesting role in the pro-democracy movement. They've been able to organize this pretty strong resistance movement against the Chinese government, uh, against a certain authoritarian 
practices and laws. And so this is one of the many groups that are being targeted and detained in these extra legal detention centers and labor camps where people end up there without ever having going, going through a trial. They don't have access to a lawyer. They work typically 15 to 20 hours a day. They're held there indefinitely. There's a lot of people that die in the camps and their lives and deaths are unaccounted for. Uh, a lot of times family members um, have a hard time even figuring out which facility their families disappeared into. You know, it's a really vicious extra legal system that dissidents often disappear into in China. And that's the price of the pro-democracy fight. So the connection here for Julie and Sun Yi is that he is assigned to the ghost team, which I think you point out in your book at the outset scares the daylights out of him because he's not exactly sure uh, watching these bones and these headstones where he's going and what he's being assigned to. But as it turns out, I guess these are the decorations that uh, that Julie opens up in Portland, right? Right. The specific decorations were a set of decorative tombstones made of styrofoam. And actually, Halloween is not widely celebrated in China. So he didn't know what Halloween was. And when he first saw uh, forced laborers making these decorations, he thought they were real gravestones and real skeletons. And he was very frightened. Uh, but it but it just shows... Um, the fact that it, they, these products were being exported for Halloween in the U.S., it just speaks to the global connection from us to these forced laborers in China who are not even actually taking advantage of them or using these goods. Yeah, I think you mentioned that uh, these Chinese manufacturers are placed under significant pressure because of the global consumer demand. So. There, there is some thinking here that we can do as consumers stateside, so to speak, when it comes to whether we need these products and whether we really have to get them at this bargain basement price that you can find them at places like Walmart and Kmart and whatever. Absolutely. There's a lot of actionable steps and changes that could be made uh, policy-wise and governments, um, but also on the corporate side of things. Um, I, I was surprised to learn during my research that a lot of times when Chinese suppliers make that decision to outsource work to a forced labor facility, it's not necessarily because they are simply unethical people uh, who don't care or or that they're just they're just chasing the cheapest price, no, no matter what the circumstances are. A, a lot of times, these Chinese suppliers don't want to do anything that might violate their contract with a major global brand like Kmart or H&M, or any of those big companies. You know, it, it, there's a lot of suppliers in China, and they're very competitive with each other. It's a big deal if they can get a contract with a big brand. So a lot of times when they make that decision to violate their contract and subcontract work to a subpar place like a forced labor facility or a prison, it's because they really have reached a point where they have no choice. The prices that our corporations are offering them are sometimes so low that they cannot realistically make the products in-house by actual workers, free workers who are there on their free will. And oftentimes the turnaround 
that is demanded from these factories is so fast that they cannot realistically make it at a normal factory. They, they have to subcontract work to some really unregulated and shady facilities like these labor camps where people can stay up 20 hours a day getting that production deadline, getting that job done um, if they have to. Um, there, there's nobody auditing these labor camps to look at the working conditions there. And I want to talk in a few minutes about those audits and uh, how often products uh, in China are actually detained because somebody does discover that um, they're being produced by forced labor. But before we get there, let's help our listeners understand how Julie Keith finds out the specific name of this person, Sun Yi. I mean, th there's this letter could have come from anywhere across the largest country in the world. And she ends up finding out the specifics on this. Can you help us with how that happened? Yes, Sun Yi was actually a political activist who just very much wanted to get his story told um, and heard by the outside world. So he had some connections and he would reach out to Western journalists. His story was, I believe, originally published in CNN, verified by CNN and the New York Times um, independently. So there had been some major Western publications that uh, interviewed him and published his story. So that was how uh, she was able to find out his name and who he was. You're listening to Amelia Pang. She's the author of Made in China, A Prisoner, an SOS Letter, and the Hidden Costs of America's Cheap Goods. So Sun Yi has a family life. Uh, I wonder if you could share with us uh, his, his wife, his family, and the concerns that they had about their safety as, as he takes these very courageous steps. Um, he just might be endangering them. And by the way, while I'm on that subject, I might also point out that you spent, I think, at least four weeks in China trying to get as close to these prison camps as you could. And in your acknowledgments, I noticed that even you say at the very end that you hope your family in China doesn't in any way bear any responsibility or get uh, identified as a result of this, this book. You might want to help us with that one as well. But Let's let's start with Sunyi and his wife. Yes, uh, Sunyi was this. He had this incredibly rich inner world. You know, he he was a really smart kid who grew up kind of in the rural areas. But his intelligence got him scholarships to universities where he could study engineering and have a chance for a better life. And you know, he was really fascinated and, and curious about the world. He, he went to college during the 80s, during a time when China was starting to open up and some Western thoughts and ideas started seeping into universities. And he studied Hegel and he really um, enjoyed Western philosophy and he deeply desired to see the world and to travel. He, you know, he was an individual that was not so, so different from, from you and I in a way. He had a love story, which the book centers on. Um, to to I, I really wanted to show the human element of who this human being was as a person. He met his wife when he was in college, and you know it didn't seem like they could end up together. But against all odds, they managed to navigate China's complicated household registration system, uh, which can determine whether or not you can marry someone or stay with someone in a or live with someone and actually find a job in a certain region. And uh, against all odds, they were able to overcome these uh, legislative 
bureaucracy hurdles and uh, end up marrying together and living in Beijing, living the dream life. Um, but shortly after, he got involved with the pro-democracy movement and um, slowly that really put a test to their marriage. And over the years, the relationship fell apart as as they tried to navigate China's very um, opaque legal system that he disappeared into. At one point, I think they actually got divorced on paper anyway, just just to protect his wife and family. Yes, um, it was quite heartbreaking for both of them. They didn't want to get divorced. They still loved each other very much, but they had no choice because it had to be done to protect her and her family. So this forced labor system, uh, you identify a number of categories of people who find themselves in it. And it's not just the, the Falun Gong people. It's, there's many other categories, including the Uyghurs. Uh, at the end of your book, you address conditions today and suggest that there's not been that much improvement. And in fact, there are new areas that the Chinese are now targeting. And, and the Uyghurs is one, the Kazakhs are others. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about where we stand today as far as this system is concerned. Uh, who have we left out in terms of the people that find themselves in these forced labor camps? Right. Uh, the people that are typically detained in these camps are a lot of religious dissidents like the Falun Gong folks, the underground Christians, the Tibetans, um, and also uh, pro-democracy activists. A lot of the Hong Kong activists are at high risk of ending up at these camps. Uh, historically, a lot of the Tiananmen uh, protesters spent some time in these in, during forced labor in these camps. Uh, there's also a lot of ethnic minorities like the Tibetans and the Uyghurs who um, get disappeared into the camps to kind of control that population and keep them silenced and living in fear and in line. There's also a lot of petty criminals uh, and sex workers, you know, people who didn't necessarily commit any violent crime, at least. They're, they're just people, a lot of times they're, they're desperate and just trying to make ends meet and maybe they'll break a minor law and then and then they end up for years in one of these camps experiencing very intense trauma, uh, loss in the system. Uh, it, the crime did, really doesn't fit the punishment. Uh, the purpose of sending all of these people in these camps is really just to fill, uh, fill a seat in this large forced labor manufacturing sector. Amelia, I wonder if you could comment on the torture that Sun Yi endured in this camp. Uh, this isn't just a question of working long hours. Uh, they want to break these people. Uh, I think you identify it as RTL, re-education through labor. If this was a normal NPR news hour show, we'd be warning people now that um, what you might tell us about this torture is going to be very difficult for some folks. And you can choose how much detail you want to go into, but I just want you to make the point and help us understand that uh, the torture this man and many others endured is just incredible and, and, and shows the unbelievable courage he had of his convictions that he never gave up. Right. These camps are designed uh, not only to extract the maximum amount of labor from these prisoners, but also change their personal, religious, and um, political identity uh, to become more in line with the party's ideology. 
whether it's the religious folks or the ethnic minorities, like the Uyghurs, uh, they have to spend a lot of time memorizing the Chinese state's propaganda, uh, nationalistic songs, um, praising Xi Jinping. These are pretty typical uh, during these uh, really brainwashing sessions. And um, in the midst of that, they're also quite brutally tortured. Um, if they resist or don't memorize these lines well enough, they're often taken into rooms uh, and tortured. Uh, if they, uh, worse yet, like Sunni's case, if they simply refuse, then decided to stick to to his beliefs then then it, the, the torture becomes even more severe uh you know it really reminds you of these soviet gulags um, it, it was so painful and the, the period that lasted so long that at one point Sunni lost his mind and that is pretty uh common in, in these types of facilities uh, a suicide attempts and uh, before, uh, during these their time at the camps and after they leave the camps is pretty common. Um, you know, it's it's a terrible, terrible environment. And in fact, China got a lot of bad press about the re-education re through labor camps over the years, uh, so much that they said they closed the camps. Um, but during my research in early 2019, when I went to visit these so-called closed re-education through labor camps. Uh, I found that most of them were reopened as, or many of them that I saw were reopened as drug detox centers. Um, but if you talk to the guards on site, they will still call this place a prison or a camp. They won't call this place a drug detox center. Um, and if you ask them about what kind of manufacturing work they do inside, they will confirm, yes, all the prisoners inside absolutely do manufacturing work. Um, I told them I was from an overseas company that wanted to source products from them. And they very openly admitted to me that they were, they outsourced their work all the time. And I spent some time following the trucks that left these facilities and saw they were working with all kinds of uh, global exporters, um, including um, official Apple factory. Well, if torture at these labor camps isn't enough reason for the U.S. to do more than it's done in the past when it comes to the flow of these dirt cheap goods into America, then the news of China's organ transplant industry really ought to get someone's attention. I thought this was the most shocking chapter in your book. Could you share with us what you learned about how these folks are targeted for this despicable practice of, uh, of organ transplant? In 2019, the China Tribunal in London, which is this independent panel of doctors, human rights lawyers, um, and other experts, looked at all the medical evidence and inconsistencies in China's organ transplant data and concluded that there's proof beyond reasonable doubt that prisoners of conscience are being targeted and killed for their organs. And it's not really a surprise that this is happening because the organ industry is a $1 billion a year trade. Um, it's incredibly, incredibly lucrative. And, uh, you know, I think due to the, the culture, uh, in Chinese culture, you're, you're supposed to really keep your body intact um, when you die and not um, necessarily uh, donating your organs or offering to donate your organs is really kind of against a lot of traditional Chinese beliefs. And there's maybe a lot of people that are not quite comfortable with that. So, so China does have an issue with actually receiving a large amount of of donor organs. Uh, so they have turned to prisoners uh, who 
you know, there's been a large amount of evidence that a lot of these forced laborers, they don't necessarily get good medical care when they're injured from the long working hours and grueling conditions and the torture. Uh, but they would periodically get these really odd um, health checks where they look at their blood types and samples and they, uh, they're really checking for whether this person has any organs that could be a match for people that are looking to take advantage of China's organ transplant industry. You're listening to Amelia Pang. She is the author of Made in China, A Prisoner, an SOS Letter, and The Hidden Cost of America's Cheap Goods. Earlier in our conversation, Amelia, you mentioned the audits that are conducted supposedly to provide a check on the ethical sourcing for these international companies. Um, maybe you could share with us just how effective those are, who really gets protected, uh, the individuals in the prison camps or the companies, and then from there we can go on perhaps to uh, detention orders. How often are there actually detention orders that put a stop to this flow of goods when it can be proven that they were produced by prison labor? Right. During my research, I spoke with Chinese auditors who uh, examine Chinese suppliers that are making products for Western companies. And they say, you know, in their decades long career, they know that uh, using prison labor is a common practice, uh, but they've never been able to prove it because it's usually subcontracted to a nearby uh, prison facility and not necessarily happening directly at the factory. And their audits are simply not designed to look at that kind of information. And these audits are really designed originally to help the corporation uh, when they get some bad press about these types of stories, uh, rather than the actual workers. You know, they're, they're pretty cursory a lot of the times. A lot of them are, are the cheaper kinds that where they only check for things like uh, the quality of the product, uh, the cleanliness of the factory, the efficacy of the equipment. Um, and then you have much more expensive audits that might uh, you know, check for more things like cross-analyzing the factory's budgets in different departments to see if they are actually subcontracting to where they say they're subcontracting to. But those are quite expensive and there's not a whole lot of companies doing those. Um, but even those are, are quite hard to actually track and prove which factory has which relationship with, with who. And so one of the only ways to actually do that is to follow the trucks that leave your factory to see who they're working with. And as far as I can tell, nobody is doing that. You also cover in your, in your book, the historical complicity, as you call it, Presidents Carter, George H.W. Bush, Bill Clinton, all play a role here in trying to do something about it. But I don't, I don't get the impression they succeeded for sure. And at some point, it's almost as though they're turning a blind eye to it. Um, the World Trade Organization, you mentioned, we, we agreed to let China into the WTO. Uh, I wonder if you could just comment generally on what's gone wrong here that America has been so lax in enforcement. Both political parties um, historically and even presently have have not done well, um, including the Trump administration in addressing the human rights, have not done enough to address the, the Chinese human rights issue. Uh, historically, the focus has been about um, 
making China an ally so that uh, by being an ally and trading with them, they will have to eventually um, democratize the country. And what we're seeing now is that really hasn't been the case. Human rights is worse than it ever has been before in China. With the rise of Xi Jinping, he has this cult-like following that resembles the days of Mao. We haven't really seen that since the days of Mao. And the human rights conditions in China has really taken a terrible turn with the rise of these Uyghur camps. Now, speaking of the Uyghur camps, you do point out that just last year, January of 2020, I believe, the Uyghur Human Rights Policy Act was passed, which doesn't ban products, but it attempts to sanction Chinese officials most responsible for the re-education camps. And here's a bipartisan solution. You don't see many of those. Republican Senator Marco Rubio and Democratic Senator Bob Menendez offered the bill. Over 50 co-sponsors jumped on it. Here's the important question. Has anything happened since then? That was definitely a positive step. Um, And and yeah, it's great that you pointed out it is a a bipartisan effort. Uh, Nobody really wants to be seen as supporting a, a genocide, which is essentially what the Uyghurs are going through. But it doesn't necessarily stop the forced labor goods from continuing to come into the U.S. There was some legislation passed to recently to ban all tomato products from the Xinjiang region um, and ban all cotton products from the Xinjiang region and, and certain more wide-scale bans. But um, but there's still a lot of other goods that's made by forced laborers in the region, including raw materials for solar panels, human hair extensions, um, even baby pajamas. You know, like there's really such a wide variety of things that are made in, uh, in that region uh, and all across China. So what will really be an effective policy if it can get passed is the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act which would ban all products from Xinjiang, which is one region with a very high level of forced labor that's been very well documented. There's really essentially no way for an auditor to go there right now and independently audit um, a factory to confirm they have no associations with the camp. So to avoid that risk, it really makes more sense to to just ban the region entirely. And it's also a really important strategic region to ban um, because the Xinjiang area is a huge part of China's Belt and Road Initiative, which is this trillion-dollar economic development strategy that connects China to the Middle East, West Asia, and Europe through these China-funded bridges, 5G networks, and other infrastructure. It's this huge transportation hub of major trade importance to China. And if that region, if we could actually band together as international community and put a dent in that region's investments, then um, that could be something that could push the Chinese government to rethink its policies towards Uyghurs, at least. So I purposely have avoided the uh, question of uh, what happened to Julie Keith and Sun Yi. And I've done so because I think your book reads like a novel. Uh, I I read it with this suspense-filled feeling of where are these two people going and how is this going to turn out? And I'm going to leave that to our listeners to figure out, because I I really think this is such an important book uh, to be read and digested by uh, anyone who cares about human rights. But the last question will be, at our end of the supply chain, what can we as consumers do? Let's close with that. Thank you so much, Bob, for the kind words. 
Um, well, actually, my book does end with some actionable steps, some some easy changes that we can make to our consumer habits that could actually affect a lot of change on the other side of the world. Um, one thing would be the next time you go shopping online at your favorite brand store, just take a moment and look at what they actually say in their corporate social responsibility page or their supply chain pages. What do they say about how they're doing audits? What kind of audits they're doing? Um, a lot of times these pages are very, very vague. They don't reveal a lot of information. So if that's the case, um, that, that's often a red flag. Um, you'd, you want to maybe go to social media and in a public way, ask the company, um, what are you doing really to ensure that there's no forced labor in your supply chain? Um, can you start revealing key things like how much you're paying factories? Um, can that price realistically pay wages in that local region? Um, can you reveal what's the production deadline you actually give factories? Can they realistically make it in that short period of time? Um, uh, these are the important questions because these are often the factors that drive to subcontracting to forced labor. And uh, having more awareness among consumers on our side of the world uh, really can spark a great change on the other side of the world. Amelia, you've performed a valuable public service for, for all of us who care about the human rights issue. And too often, I think the human rights issue is kind of an antiseptic term where we can't really relate it to what's really going on in places like the forced labor camp that uh, Soon Yi was assigned to. You've done a beautiful job of getting that down so we can understand it and do something about it. Thank you so much for joining us today at Reader's Corner. Thank you so much for having me. It's been an honor. Next week, Daniel Levin joins us on the program to talk about his latest book, Proof of Life, The Undercover Search for a Missing Person in Syria, Where Arms, Drugs, and People Are for Sale. Reader's Corner is presented by Boise State Public Radio. Engineer for today's show is Eric Jones, with production by Joel Wayne. I'm Bob Kustra. Please join me next week as we talk to today's leading writers about the ideas and issues that help shape our world at Reader's Corner. Reader's Corner.